Well, today we're wrapping up this series in Exodus, and it's been just eight weeks. It's 40 chapters, so eight weeks isn't too much time to be able to hit every single verse. And so what we've been able to do is to go through a lot of the themes of Exodus for us to see, okay, how does this book point us to Jesus? And it's been very fun for me to go through it in this way. And Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's what's often called the Torah, uh, which is a word that means uh, under, um, understanding or instruction. And so these were instructions for the people of Israel. Kind of think of them as like their uh, constitutional documents of this is how they got formed, this is where they came from, this is how they're supposed to live, this is what their values are supposed to be. And this story is one about freedom in the book of Exodus. And this is really where the people of Israel got their start because uh, they had found, they went down to the land of Egypt, out of the land of Canaan, uh, modern day, um, you know, Israel, that area. Uh, and they went there because of a famine. They're, and then their family grew and grew and grew while they're in Egypt. And eventually they get enslaved by the Pharaoh down there who's like, these people are too numerous. Let's uh, enslave them and let's actually kill off their baby boys so they don't rise up and revolt against us. And then God sees that, and he knows, and he understands what's going on for them. And then he takes action through a man named Moses, and he uses Moses to go and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may come out of Egypt, and they may worship me, that they may serve me, that they may sacrifice to me. And eventually, Pharaoh does let them go after God pummels them with these plagues. And then he finally says, okay, go. And they go, and God leads them through a sea, literally parts the sea so that they can keep going and through the wilderness to a mountain that we often call Mount Sinai. And it's there that God reveals himself to them. There's like thunder and cloud and crazy stuff going on in the mountain. And he says to them, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. Now would you commit to be my people? And they say, yes, we will. And then that's where we get the Ten Commandments. Those are like Israel's vows to God. It's like a marriage ceremony of like God saying, this is who I am and what I commit to you. And this is what I want you to commit to me, the Ten Commandments. And then we saw last week how that was the ink was barely dry on the marriage certificate, and they're already uh, committing adultery against God, sleeping around on God. They break the first two commandments. You shouldn't have any other God before me. You should make no carved images of God. And they do that while Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions from God. And so last week we had skipped ahead to chapters 32 through 34, and now we're doing the passages that are on both sides of that. While Moses is on the mountain... The people are down below making this golden calf. They're worshiping it. They're like, where did Moses go? He's been off too long. I mean, 40 days is kind of a long time to wait for somebody. But they're like, where is Moses? Where is this guy? Make us some gods. And so Moses' brother Aaron makes us these, them, uh, these gods. And what we saw is Moses was on the mountain getting these instructions from God that we're going to look at today. And then God says, it's kind of like, meanwhile, down below, the people of Israel are breaking their covenant with God already. And God says, you need to go down there. Things are a mess. And so we're looking at what comes right before Moses uh, going down and what comes after Moses has gone down to talk with the people and lead them in repentance. And this passage that uh, what they're going to complete here is going to be one year after the Exodus. The Exodus happened around 1200, 1500 BC, 3000 years ago. And this is about one year after God had them, led them in an Exodus out of Egypt. And we started this whole series with a message called not how it's supposed to be. Looking at Israel's life in Egypt. That's not how God had designed life to be. And in a way, today we're looking at how God is returning them to how it's supposed to be. It was not how it's supposed to be, and God is 
bringing them out, not just freeing them from something, but freeing them for something, freeing them from not how it's supposed to be, freeing them for how it is supposed to be, how life with God is supposed to work. And honestly, these chapters we're looking at are probably part of the Bible you skip when you're reading through it. You're going through a reading plan. Have you ever tried to do a one-year reading plan? You go through Genesis and you're like, okay, we got started with creation and then eventually you hit a few genealogies of like so-and-so was so-and-so's son and so and you're like, okay, like I kind of made it through that and then you get to Exodus. You're like, oh man, exciting stuff. Pharaoh, plagues, God going head-to-head. Then all of a sudden you hit chapter 25 and you're like, what is going on? Why am I getting an Ikea furniture blueprint? I hate Ikea. I don't want to put furniture together. And now you get... Chapter 25, and God's saying, this is how you're going to make this tent. This is how you're going to make this table. This is how you're going to make this. And you might just be like, what is this doing here? And then you get to 32, and you're like, oh, good. Uh, another story. Oh, yeah, the people, they did bad. Uh, Moses going down there. He's confronting them. And then all of a sudden, you get through that, and you're at 35. You're like, what? 35 through 40, more instructions for how to build this building. You might be like, this is uh, really boring. But there's a reason it's in the Bible. And we should think, why is that? Why did they take so much time to do this? What is this here for that we would want to be reading this today? And what these chapters do is they tell us a lot about how we relate to God. They tell us a lot. And so the question I'm going to give you for as we go through is, is through this, which you can ask for lots of passages, is what does this tell me about how a relationship with God works? What does this tell me about how a relationship with God works? And that's a question you can ask to all the passages. Many of them are in the Old Testament where you're like, what is even happening here? And you can always ask, what is this telling me about how a relationship with God works? And so we're going to go through chapters 25 through 31 first. And let me just read how this starts off, what God says to them, uh, what God says to Moses. So he's up on the mountain. He's receiving this from God. This is what God's telling him. I'm going to read chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so God is, what he's giving instructions for is for them to make a sanctuary, a holy place, a, a holy home in which God is going to dwell, be present with them and among them. And he says, what you're going to do is do it exactly uh, as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, which is like, an, it's like basically a tent. The tabernacle is kind of a big tent. And, and it's going to have furniture. And he says, I'm going to show you exactly how to make this. And what these chapters are, chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, are instructions for making this tabernacle. And every single piece of it, all of it has a purpose. And we're not going to be able to get to go into every single piece of it, but we're going to hit some of the big uh, themes that go through this. And we, if we want to see the purpose in it, we need to review... Uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the very first chapters of the Bible. And so I'm just going to do that very quickly. That what happens in Genesis 1 through 3 is there's, there's nothing, and then God creates a world. First he forms it, and then he fills it over six days. The first three days, God forms the universe. He creates you know, a place for things to live. And then, and then days 4 through 6, he then fills it with animals and fish and people. So God forms the world. And fills the world in six days. And after each day, we're told these words, it was evening and it was morning the first day. And then it was evening and it was morning the second day. It was evening and morning and it was the third day. And then God, on the sixth day, makes humans in his image. He makes us as people who reflect him, who reflect what he's like. We image what God is like. And he made humans to take care of this place 
uh, that he had made. And often kings in that time were places where they ruled. They would create an image of themselves and they'd put that where they ruled. And then you would come and see, oh, that's the person in charge here. And God puts images of himself, people, makes people in his image, and he puts them there that this is who is in charge here. <coughs> if I have to eat a cough drop, I will, so you don't have to bear with me dying up here, uh, coughing on my lungs. And God puts these humans there, and then God stands back, at, as he goes through each day, it, was, it says, it was good. And then on the sixth day, he stands back and says, it was very good. And so God does his work six days, each time says it's good, and then stands back at the end and says it's very good. And then we're told on the seventh day, he rested. He had finished his work, he rested, and then he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And the word we use for that seventh day is Sabbath. It's going to get used later in the Bible. And what God is doing here is he created a dwelling for him and humanity to live in together. That this earth, this place that he made, was supposed to be a temple. A temple where you go to meet God, that you would experience God's presence with us uh, and around us through all of it. And these instructions that we get uh, about the tabernacle, the sanctuary God wants to make, takes us right back to this story. And let me, sorry, Bob, i got to move your, your stand. We'll get the stage hand, like last week, to, to move it around, wherever that is. They live behind this backdrop. <laughs> so everything we, that happens in uh, Genesis 1 through 3 uh, when we read that, it remind, as we're reading these instructions for the tabernacle, it'll remind us of Genesis 1 through 3. And so we often know it as the Garden of Eden, which means there is a place called Eden. So this is Eden. And then there's a garden in Eden, the Garden of Eden. And then in the center of this garden, there's something called the Tree of Life. And so you have these four, these three things. You have Eden. I know my hand. I'm not a teacher, so my penship is terrible. I don't know how to write on a whiteboard. Garden, and then tree. So we have these three parts to it. And then as we go through um, the structure of what this tabernacle, this sanctuary looks like, what we get is actually we get three more places. We have, this is the whole, basically the courtyard. Within the courtyard, there's a tabernacle. Oh, actually, I didn't draw that right. It's got to be like this. And then this is the tent, the tabernacle. And within that tent, there is an inner place. This is called the court. This is called the holy place. This is called the most holy place. So even how it's designed, it's like, okay, you've got the big thing around, then you've got a thing in here, and then you've got the very center. There's something in there. And so you have the court, you have the tent, and within the tent, you have uh, the most holy place. And so even how this thing is designed, how the tabernacle is designed, is supposed to take you back to Eden, that you're thinking, oh, like we know where this happened before. And one of the other things that you see over and over in these instructions that God is giving Moses is all the sevens. Remember, God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And so actually, 20, chapters 25 through 31, there's seven speeches. Each one begins with, the Lord said to Moses. And then actually the seventh speech is about the Sabbath. So there's six speeches on instructions for how to make this. And then the seventh speech is, here's the the Sabbath, the day of rest that God blessed and made holy. There's also seven parts to the tabernacle. And did everyone get this little sheet that was back there? I know this isn't like the most amazing uh, thing. This kind of came out of my um, my study Bible, and you're not meant to be able to actually read it. I'm sorry that you can't. I didn't, you know, it's just, just how the image, how big the image was. Um, but what you can see there is you see the court, uh, and then you see 
the tabernacle tent in there. And then if you see that little purple like curtain thing, you can see that's the most holy place. And so when God starts telling him, okay, this is how you're going to make the tabernacle, uh, that, which is all that stuff in that little tent thing, there's seven parts to it. There's the materials that are going to be used. There's the ark or the chest of testimony. That's the thing uh, way in the, behind the curtain in the very back of the tabernacle. And in that, well, it's called the ark of the testimony or the, it's a chest, basically, a chest of testimony. Testimony is God takes, um, he's, Moses is supposed to take the tablets of stone on which God wrote the Ten Commandments and put it in there. And so the very center of this community's life is this is who God is and this is what he's called us to be. It's in, in there. And later on they put some of the, we've talked about the manna that they had in the wilderness. They put a jar of that in there. Later on Aaron, Moses' brother, is going to have a staff that buds miraculously and they're supposed to put that in there. And so there's a couple of things that go in there. But so you have the ark or the chest of the testimony. You have the table for bread. You have the lampstand, the curtains and tent, the incense altar, the pipe and drape for the courtyard. And then at the end of this, so it's like, here's these seven parts of the tabernacle. And at the end of it, it says, you're supposed to keep that lamp in there, burning evening and morning. Remember, God, he created on day one, and it said there's evening and morning the first day. And over and over again, it said this. And then it goes into what the priests who are supposed to, you can see these little people down there kind of working, uh, what the priests are supposed to wear. And if you flip over to the back of this, this is actually the invisible man wearing the priest's garments. Because, you know, anyway, I thought that was funny. Uh, that he doesn't have a head or anything. Um, but now they go through, here's the seven pieces of what the priests are supposed to wear. One is an ephod, which is kind of like an apron. This, my printer's kind of printed wonky, so it's not quite the right colors. But basically that thing that looks like an apron um, that doesn't go fully down is called the ephod. And then there's the breast piece. It's that thing with the, the 12 uh, jewels there, which each represent one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, there's the blue robe that's underneath the, the uh, apron. And then there's the, the crown. That's that gold thing up uh, by the head. Then there's the white checkered coat, which is that where the sleeves are that goes underneath everything. Then there's the turban. That's the actual hat uh, that's sitting on top of the crown. And then there's the sash that's tied around his waist. And so there's seven parts of the priest's garment. And then it goes into how you're going to ordain or consecrate or set apart these people for their priestly duties. And that goes over the course of seven days. And then it ends with saying, and you're going to offer burnt offerings in the evening and in the morning, just like we saw, you know, day two, done, evening, morning. It was the second day. And then it goes into seven more instructions for other tabernacle furniture, the altar of incense, uh, also taking a, a census tax, basically a fundraiser, uh, water basin, anointing oil, incense for the incense altar, and the artisans who are going to make it. And the seventh instruction in this list is the Sabbath, which is also the seventh speech. So over the course of seven speeches, God lays out, here's the instructions for the tabernacle. Six of them are about, here's how things are going to get made, get built, created. And then the seventh is Sabbath, goes into rest. Another thing is that the tabernacle faces east. The door is to the east because... When Adam and Eve, who are the first humans to live here, God creates Eden, creates a garden, there's a tree in the middle, and he gives Adam and Eve, the first humans, you're going to work and keep this garden, and God was present with them. But what happens is that they eventually disobey God, they decide they don't want God in charge, and then God sends them east, out of the garden. And so now if you imagine the tabernacle, I didn't actually set this up very well, it should be turned uh, that way, I guess, because... Now, when you enter the tab tabernacle, you're coming from the east. It's like Adam and Eve were sent out east. When you enter the tabernacle, this new tent, this new Eden, 
you're coming in from the east. And some of the decorations uh, on, you probably, uh, can you see it on this? Uh, if you're looking at the Tabernacle one, if you look at that purple curtain that's like right here, you can see there's maybe these little gold like figures on there. I know it's very hard to see. There's these little gold figures. They're called cherubim, which is a, just the Hebrew word transliterated into English. It's basically these things with wings. They're kind of like angelic beings. And when God sends Adam and Eve out east, he puts these two cherubim, these like two angel creatures, at the entrance to the garden so that they couldn't have access to the tree of life. So they're guarding the garden. And so when you're coming to the tabernacle, when you come to the, the curtain that is uh, on the very front, the door, there's cherubim there. And then you walk in and you see another curtain with cherubim there guarding the entrance to God's presence. And so that is another connection with Eden that they are guarding. They're like guardians. And then all the decorations in there, like the lampstand has this fruit on it, which takes you back to the Garden of Eden, that there is fruit, things for them to eat. And also the building materials, for some reason, we're told this random detail in Genesis 2 that... Oh, by the way, there's gold and onyx in Eden. I don't even know what onyx is besides a Pokemon character. Anybody? Stone. No. Stone. A, I mean, it's a stone, but it's like I've never like held an onyx. And it's like a black, shiny stone, right? And so it's like, well, what are you going to make some of this stuff? Make, there's a bunch of gold. There's a bunch of onyx in the tabernacle. And so when you enter the tabernacle... As these people, if they have Genesis 1 through 3 in their minds, they're like, wait, there's all these sevens we created in six days and there's a Sabbath. Gold and onyx, we've heard about that before. Wait, the cherubim, you have to walk through the cherubim coming in from the east. It's all supposed to take us back to how God created the world, the Garden of Eden. Another way you can look at it is that this is a king's tent where the ark or the chest is his throne. There's a lot of purple, there's a lot of gold, very royal. And the priests are these royal priests who are told to work it and keep it uh, and they're in the presence, and they're basically people entering Eden, the new Eden, this mini Eden, representing uh, the people to God and God to the people. And I just want to read what their job was, the priest's job was, in 20, chapter 29, verses 43 to 46. There I'll meet with the people of Israel, speaking of the tabernacle, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God's goal here is that I want you to know me that I'm with you, that I'm, I'm here with you in this. And so that's what happens in chapters 25 through 31. God's giving Moses all these instructions, and then we get the whole chapters 32 and 34. Meanwhile, down below, the people are creating these new gods and worshiping them, and so Moses is sent down to deal with that. And then he gives, goes back to God, and they renew their covenant commitments, and God is, I mean, there's so much uh, redemption in this story because it's like God doesn't give up on them. He says, okay, I, I mean, there's discipline, there's consequences for this, but I'm still going to have you be my people. And even Aaron, who we're reading about here being a priest, um, he's the one who led the whole thing down below, that he made this other God for them. And for him to still be able to operate as a high priest in his family, for it to pass down to them, it's just God's grace. And so Moses goes down, and then he has to come back up and talk with God. And then he comes back after, you know, kind of getting 
forgiveness and reconciliation squared away between God and his people. And he gives them the instructions for like, here, now we're going to make this. And so that's what happens in chapters 35 through 40, is them just going through making this tabernacle. And it begins with the Sabbath instruction. And kind of like the last section ended, it begins with the Sabbath. And I'm just going to point out a couple details about this section. Multiple times we're told that, you know, it's kind of like, well, where do they get all this stuff to build this? Like, they need all these materials, gold and onyx, where did this come from? And actually, when they were leaving Egypt, uh, multiple times we're told that they're supposed to ask the Egyptians for precious metals and stuff as they're leaving Egypt. And so later on, they use all this gold they're given to build the tabernacle. And over and over again, they keep saying, um, this was given as a free will offering. People just gave from their hearts. Like you could give if you wanted to, you didn't have to, and so you'll give from their hearts. And over several times we're told that God is filling certain people with his spirit, giving them skills to be able to make this stuff, to make this beautiful stuff that's worthy of God's honor. And sometimes maybe we think like, well, it, I mean, it just kind of gives this cool picture of like God filling artisans with his spirit, that that creating uh, the creativeness coming from God that he gives to people. And so that brings us all the way to, we don't need to you know, go over those chapters because it's basically going over all the things that they're supposed to make. But I'm just going to read the final verses of chapter 39 when they're finishing it up. Chapter 39, verse 42 through 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. And that should take us back to Eden too, because what happened was God finishes the work, and then it says he sees it, and he calls it good, and then he blesses that day of rest. And so what Moses does here is that they finish the work, he sees it, it's good, he blesses it, and it was all done as the Lord had commanded. And how does God create the world, we're told he speaks it. He tells it to happen. It's by God's words that he creates the world. And now this tabernacle, this new Eden, this new place for God to be with his people is now created as God commanded by his very words. And then chapter 40, they get into setting up the tabernacle. We're told it's the one year anniversary of leaving Egypt. Uh, and over this whole time, God's been revealing himself to them. And God says, okay, first you're going to take the tabernacle and you're going to anoint it, meaning you're going to dedicate it to God. You're going to set apart for <coughs> holy purposes. And then he says that you're going to also anoint the priests. You're going to dedicate them to my service. You're going to set them apart for my service. Then in verse 16, we read, This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded. And then the what we get in verses 16 through 33 is basically just going through him setting it up. And we, it goes through each piece. He like builds it from the inside out. It's like, he, you know, he like starts in the middle and then keeps coming out to it and builds it. And it's like this anticipation is slowly coming together is that uh, what's going to happen? Like God said, this is going to be the place where I dwell. Like we're getting the picture here, God. Like you're taking us back to Eden, taking us back when you dwelt with us. Like this is going to be a mini Eden. What's going to happen here? And so he sets it up, sets it up, sets it up. And after, now let me just go through the parts to kind of, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but to just give you a sense of this anticipation and over and over again, it says, as the Lord had commanded. So he sets up the tabernacle as the Lord had commanded. Sets up the ark as the Lord had commanded Moses. The table as the Lord had commanded Moses. The lampstand as the Lord had commanded Moses. The golden altar of incense as the Lord had commanded Moses. The bronze altar burnt offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
the bronze basin for washing as the Lord had commanded Moses, and then the court, and we're told, so Moses finished the work, and the words, as the Lord had commanded Moses, are said seven times, and then he finishes the work. Let me just read what happens in the last verses of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. And so it ends with God fills it, and then all the people, including Moses, are standing outside of God's presence. And what we've been seeing is Moses has been going up into God's presence this whole time, and so now he's not able to go in now, that something needs to be dealt with. And we may ask why, and we need to go back to, well, in chapters 32 through 34, they broke their covenant with God, and that needs to be dealt with in some way. It hasn't been fully dealt with. And so the question would be, well, how do they get in? How can they ever go into God's presence? And the book right after Exodus is the book of Leviticus, which if you didn't drop off in the tabernacle instructions in Exodus, you get to Leviticus, you might drop off there in your Bible reading plan because now we're going through what the priests do, all the different sacrifices, all the blood, and how all of that is working. It's just you know long chapters, but all, it's to ask, we need to ask, what does this tell me about how a relationship with God works? It's that you cannot enter his presence apart from a priest offering a sacrifice in your place, on your behalf. And right outside the tabernacle, you have the tent, and then right here you have uh, the bronze altar for making sacrifices. That if you want to come in here, if you want to pass these cherubim guarding God's presence, if you want to go into God's presence, there must be a sacrifice that cleanses you of your sin, the bad that you've done, the things that make you unclean and unrighteous. It's okay thinking about what this means for us. One way to understand what the Bible is all about is to trace the themes that run through the whole thing. And there's like 10 to 15 really major themes, and it's like a thread. You pick it up, you know, if there was like a little thread on this carpet, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to pull this up. You'd be like, you know, you just keep, might keep walking. It's like you pick up this thread, and then it's like you follow it. And all these themes, I mean, there's you know, made, 10 to 15 major ones, and all of them show up in Exodus, and many of them are right here in these instructions for the tabernacle. This includes the tabernacle slash temples, basically the same function, priests, sacrifice, covenant, sin, and death. And these themes all have like the same pit stops as you go through the Bible. One starts in creation, Genesis 1 through 3, and then it's the nation of Israel, and then it's into the prophets of Israel, and then it's Jesus, and then it's the church. And then it's the new creation at the end of the Bible. So you go from Genesis 1 through 3, creation, and then creation gets broken. And then Revelation 21 20, and 22, a new creation, God renews uh, everything he's created. And so it has these same pit stops. And so we're just going to go through the Eden one for a bit, which is basically a temple. And so God, uh, Eden was this temple. This was a place, uh, the, and the world was supposed to be this place where God would dwell with his people. And then we get kicked out of it. And so now God creates this tabernacle, like I'm going to dwell among this people I've chosen. Like I'm, t I'm coming, we're coming back to the original purpose of our relationship. But then eventually, 
uh, in the prophets, the people are saying, uh, they're looking at Israel and they're saying, God's going to leave us. Like often what they would say is like, no nation is going to take us over. We have the temple. We have God with us. Nobody can take over this nation. And prophets uh, like Jeremiah, like Micah say, don't just take that for granted. Like having God's presence with us is a privilege. And then Ezekiel actually sees uh, has this vision of God's glory leaving the temple, and then they get conquered by the nation of Babylon. And then, okay, well, where's the presence? Is it going to come back? And the temple gets destroyed, and then they rebuild it, but it just wasn't the same. The people who saw the old temple, like, wept because they're like, this just isn't the same. We didn't even see the glory of God fill in. So it's like, well, is God even in there still? And then Jesus comes, and he starts talking about destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And people are like, this guy's a lunatic. And then eventually they thought, how are you going to rebuild that temple in three days? How are you going to destroy it? And then the, eventually they realized, oh, he's talking about his body, that he was the temple of God come in the flesh. John 1.14 says, uh, the word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, is usually how it's translated, but it's the Greek word uh, that would be for the Hebrew word that means tabernacle. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then it says, and we have seen uh, let me just read what it says. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So we have uh, glory, we have tabernacling. Those two things go together. And there's this funny little passage in Hebrews. <clears throat> I don't have the page number for you, but I'm not going to spend time there. But, you know, it, it says this funny thing, Hebrews chapter 9. And talking about all this furniture in the tabernacle, it says, Now even the first covenant, referring to this covenant between God and Israel, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. I think this is really funny. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And then he moves on. The author moves on. You're like, wait, what have been really nice to hear the, the details of like, what do all these things mean? How do they correspond to my, our life? Before he actually goes on to it, it's like, I don't have time to get into all the furniture. There's meaning there. But let me tell you this. What is really important is we have a new high priest, Jesus, who's better than those high priests. And he made a better sacrifice. He's a high priest who sacrificed himself on my behalf. And there was sacrifice every day, multiple times a day. There's just regular scheduled ones and people coming and taking sacrifices. So there's animals and blood all the time dying here. And then Hebrews says, but the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for, cannot pay for a human life. And it says, and these priests, they have to offer them day after day after day. And Jesus offered a better sacrifice that once and for all, for all people, whoever would trust in him, he has given the sacrifice once. You don't have to do it again. And so that's where he goes to. And actually there's this really cool book this book is a kid's book, and it goes through this theme. And when Jesus died, I'm going to show you this picture of how it depicts it. When Jesus dies on the cross, we're told in Matthew, is that that curtain, this curtain that was right here, separating people from God's the most holy place in here, was torn. Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, showing us that there's no longer barriers to accessing God, that Jesus has paved the way into that. I love this page. Whenever I read this to Hudson, this is the, the page of the curtain tearing. Look at these guys. They're like, they're like, what? What is happening? I love it. It's like the curtain tour got it ripped up. They call that curtain. Keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again because Jesus died. We can go in. 
and these are just, you know, all the priests freaking out. I was like, oh, ah, that's not supposed to break, but I just love it. Yeah, what would that have been? You're just like, do, 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 I'm just going to, you know, get the incense burning again. <laughs> and it breaks. They're like, we're not even supposed to go in there. We're not even, not even supposed to, you know, look in there or see stuff in there. And then the next stop after Jesus is now the church, that Jesus uh, died, gives us access to God. But then what we're actually told in the New Testament is that now the people of God are now the place that is God's temple, that we are chosen, we are bought, and God moves in and he renovates and redecorates. But then it points forward to this new creation, this new eating that's going to happen in the future that Jesus says, I'm going to come and make it all new, and God's presence is going to be in all of it. And so one of our problems is that we often assume that if we're going to be close to God, it's up to us. He's up there, and I've got to climb the ladder to get to him. But God is the one who's actually built the ladder to come down to us. And the whole vision of the Bible is not us climbing up to God, but a God who came down to us to bring heaven to us. And the flow of the gospel, the good news, is from God to us, not us to God, that somehow I have to get up there and I have to attain it. But it's no, God has come down and it flows from him to us. And that means that we need to put ourselves in a position to receive, accept, and welcome and so if we consider, what does this tell us about our relationship with God? That he takes the initiative. We don't work our way to him, but he comes down and he makes himself accessible. We don't earn access to him, but he makes himself accessible. And we might ask, well, where does he make himself accessible? And we might look back at this story and be, how awesome would it have been to see the glory of God filling that tabernacle? Man, that would have been crazy. Same thing happens when they build the temple, like a more permanent you know, thing rather than this mobile tent. They build a temple, permanent building. Same thing happens. Glory fills it, and none of the priests can get in there. We might think, what would it have been like to have been there? That would have been so cool. Or even better, Jesus, who's now the presence of God, the glory of God, tabernacling above us, or among us, that we see him, that this is, this is God in the flesh. How awesome would that have been? He fulfilled all that the tabernacle and temple pointed to. But what's crazy is that Jesus said, it's better for me to go. And why is that? He says, because if I don't leave, if I don't return to my Father in heaven, then I cannot send the Holy Spirit. And when I send you the Holy Spirit, now you become the temple. You become the tabernacle. So Jesus says it's better for him to not be here. It was better for him to not be sitting right here in this. Well, he, probably he would be up here, actually. Uh, you're better, <laughs> it's better for Jesus to not be here teaching us. He says it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit in you, we might want to ask these Israelites, like, what was that like when the tabernacle got filled? And they would ask us, what was it like for the Holy Spirit to come live in you? Because we never even experienced that. This has huge implications for our lives. For one, we are, we are the temple of God. We are the tabernacle of God. They had to take, you know, Jewish men, Hebrew men, would take pilgrimages to the temple three times a year to be at the temple. We don't need to take a pilgrimage. That God is dwelling in us. The tabernacle is no longer a building you go to. It's a people you belong to. And I thought about asking this trick question. I'll give it to you, but I'm not asking you. We might say, well, how many of you came to church today? And you'd be like, uh, what? Like, we all came to church today. That's why we're here. Uh, but I would say none of you came to church today because you are the church. We don't go to church. We don't go to something that we are. 
And if you'll notice my language whenever I talk about this space, I never call this the church. I always say the church building because this is where our church meets. This is not the church. This is not the sanctuary of God. This is not the tabernacle. I mean, we call this room the sanctuary, but this is not the tabernacle. This is not the temple. God's people are the tabernacle. And that may make you wonder, well, uh, if I can have access to God in my PJs, why did I get dressed to come here today if I can just access God on my own? And so I said the first simple big thing is that we are the temple of God, and the second is we are the temple of God. You see the emphasis? The one is that we actually are it, and the other is that we are the temple of God. Not you, not you, not you individually, but the Bible, whenever it's talking about the church being the temple of God, it's always a plural you, which I think the South can understand this better. It's a y'all. It's not a you and you and you. Like, you are the temple of God. We always take that very individualistically. Like, you are the temple of God. Yay, me. But it's always saying, y'all, y'all are temple of God. We are the temple of God. It's a we, not an I. And so you cannot be the temple on your own. On your own. But you are one stone. First Peter chapter 2 talks about you are precious stones, part of the temple of God. I mean, if you feel like, man, I'm just like, you know, a dirty, rotten sinner. Who would ever want me? God's like, I want you to be a stone in my temple. You are chosen. You are precious. And you are part of this temple. You aren't to be. You're not, there's not like some rubble pile where like, here's all the broken stones. We just threw them over here. But God takes us and he makes us part of his temple. In many churches, you might go into, you're like, I'm not feeling the templeness here. <laughs> you know, this. I named this message Heaven on Earth because that was the purpose of temples or tabernacles. It was so that is where heaven and earth intersected, were united. And so the church is supposed to be this place that's heaven on earth. I know that's, I wouldn't even say that if I didn't think the Bible was talking about it. And so often we might go in church and be like, this doesn't feel like heaven at all. I think it's actually the problem we just were talking about, that we can stay too individualistic. There's a book that uh, an old pastor, I think think it's 1800s, um, but Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a little book called Heaven is a World of Love. And so the church, if it's to be heaven on earth, ought to be a world of love. That when people step in to this community, that they experience something of unconditional, radical, uh, other-centered love. No matter what they've done, no matter who they are, that everyone here is treated uh, well and is love. And this is why we say the statements at the end of our service that we read at the beginning. That uh, if this is me, a community where people can actually meet God that we are not against but for one another, that we love one another no matter what, that we help one another become more like Jesus. And that glory is seen, we saw last week, the glory of God is seen in how good he treats bad people. And so that should always be what's here. Where, how do you see the glory of God in a church community? It's by how good we treat each other when we do bad things, when other people come and, it's, and we're welcomed. And finally, implication is we are the place where people make God. Sorry, where people meet God. That's what temples were for. That's where you went to meet with the gods. Or in Israel's case, the God, the one true God. Temples are where people meet God. It's just crazy to think of that. Like, through us, people can meet God. They can see and experience the very presence and glory of God. I just want to give you this image. I could do this as a, in an accent. Uh, this image is from a band called Rent Collective, and one of their albums was written around a campfire. They sang it around a campfire, and so uh, they said this in kind of their trailer video for the album. 
They said we need to be careful not to allow hurt or cynicism to drive us from church. Otherwise, we end up like a branch taken from the fire, lifeless and cold. So I just want to give you this image. It's not really one you find in the Bible of the church being a campfire. But when Jesus said he'd build his church, he didn't mean a building. But what if we just imagine like he was building a campfire of people that were on fire for him? Because if you're just one little stick on fire, you're just going to snuff out. But when we all come together as God's temple, and I want to, this is kind of the image I want to give you. Church is a campfire of God's love, providing light and warmth in a dark and cold world. If this world is dark and cold, and the church is supposed to be a campfire of God's love, that people are drawn in by the light and the warmth because they're like, I, just, I want to warm myself up by that fire too. Let's pray. God, thank you for making us your people. Thank you for making us your place that you want to dwell, for cleansing us of our sins that you can. Would you help us live as your temple together? Son's name we pray. Amen.